0: Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. We have an update on how Hamilton's encampment protocol is going, gas prices are tumbling, and will the Bulldogs stay in Brantford? Also, I'm talking about building homes, learning what police really face, and thrombosis. All that next year on the GMH podcast.
1: This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We have an update on how Hamilton's encampment protocol is going, and according to... A city councilor says what happened in September is encouraging. John Poldenko is the councilor for Ward 8 with the city of Hamilton and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. JP, good morning. How are you? Good morning. So you called the initial results from the encampment protocol in September uh, in a uh, recent post on X. 39 encampments were referred to enforcement, 21 sites cleared, 15 sites inactive or currently in active enforcement. Only three sites remain and are compliant. The one site in Ward 8 is no longer active. What do you consider encouraging about that?
2: Well, I think uh, what we're seeing in the trends. From the the first month of the encampment protocol being fully in effect is that we're starting to actually enforce some of the rules and expectations for both behavior and for location and for things that were, were going on in these encampments. There's still obviously a tremendous amount of work to do. Um, some of these encampments have been there for a very long time. they're They're very well established and embedded. Um, and it, it takes a long time to reach out, get the supports to those people, make sure that they are supported in uh, wherever it is that they're going to end up. Um, but ultimately, I, I do see this as very encouraging that that we are making progress on um getting people help and also getting the encampments out of the parks where they should not be.
0: Not so encouraging, and and you and everyone else will know this, the death of a 33-year-old man late last month who was killed near an encampment near City Hall, really. Um, What more do we need to do here?
2: Well, I I think that's a really tragic and unfortunate example of some of the issues that we're trying to address through the encampment protocol. So when we we hear the, the... Experts on housing and homelessness. One of the big things is that when you have a large, established, entrenched encampment that has many, many tents, many people living there, those bad behaviors then become accelerated. Um, you know, the the drug use, the violence and assault, and things like that. And unfortunately, you know, in that example that you cited at City Hall, again, just a, a tragic outcome. Um, whereas if we can break those large encampments up in into smaller manageable sites where they can um be reached with outreach support where they those those bad behaviors aren't uh fed off of each other uh I, I think what we're hearing from the experts anyway is it becomes a much more manageable situation and not such a, a detriment and impact on neighborhoods and the community in the whole.
0: So why not, when the protocol was officially put in place, uh, break up the large encampments right away to avoid any of these problems?
2: That's, that's the work that's underway right now. It does take time. Um, these are people that have very significant needs, um, and a lot of them... You know to be completely honest really don't have very many options so we have invested in shelter space we've invested four, more than four million dollars in new emergency shelters we have invested two and a half million dollars in shelter space for women um but we want to make sure that we're not just you know going to go in with the police throw people out of their tents and throw all their stuff in the garbage we're being very as compassionate and careful about it as we can be and, and it does take time and it also depends on who it is that we're talking about. Some people do have options. Um, there, there is space in the men's shelter. So for, for men, there are options. For women and for families, it, it is much more difficult.
0: We're in discussion with John Paul Poldenko, Councillor Ward 8, with the City of Hamilton about the city's encampment protocol and how it is progressing. Uh, if if people in tents are breaking the protocol, they're being told to go to another location or being offered you know, shelter space if that is an option. Some might think of this as a bit of a shell game if you're just being moved around town. Do we know how these individuals are dealing with that, and and what kind of outreach is being done?
2: Well, for for every time that that an encampment is reported to the city, and we we have over 200 uh, complaints every single week, so it, it is a fairly significant amount. Um, first and foremost, staff are there to support the people that are that are suffering in those conditions to offer, offer them supports, whether that's mental health supports or addictions uh, or connections with other friends or family they might have. Um, so before we even go to enforcement, we are trying to go that compassionate route to offer assistance, which is, you know, it, as much as is available. Uh, to your point, I think what we want to avoid is just moving people, like you said, as, as a shell game. So I think that will happen to a certain extent that as we break up the large entrenched encampments, um, we will have smaller, manageable, compliant encampments around the city. But again, as, as I said, those are much more manageable and they don't have such a huge negative impact on the surrounding community.
0: As you mentioned, JP, there is a lot more work to do, including obviously building affordable homes. Where are we with that?
2: Well, we're, we're doing everything that we can as a municipality. We are investing, um, I think it was more than $100 million last year in, in total in housing and homelessness. Uh, it, obviously, it takes time for housing to come on stream, but we're working with our partners. We, we have a new housing secretariat uh, at the City of Hamilton, and their sole purpose is to identify opportunities for affordable housing it does take time and and to be completely honest we need much more support from our provincial and federal partners uh especially on the provincial side where we need support for mental um mental health supports and addition addiction supports and actually we just had a report at this week's uh um, public health meeting that there was no additional funding for that so you know i think at a municipal level our, our hard-working taxpayers are Stepping up, they're contributing their their funds to help uh, help as much as we can, Um, but we we do need that support from upper levels of government.
0: Well, I got forty five seconds. What is the status of the tiny homes project? Is that going ahead as planned? Because I know it's that's been a hot topic in town.
2: Uh, To be honest, I'm not sure. I I know the residents in that area certainly have made their thoughts very clear. Uh, Hopefully, there there is a. A solution that can be reached for that to go ahead because it is it is an important option for some people but i, I think it's important to also realize that it's it's only I, I think a dozen tiny shelters a dozen people so it it is a part of the solution but it's not the only solution
0: Councilor denko always appreciate the time thanks for joining us this morning
2: Thanks for having me on,
0: Rick. And it's Ward 8 Councillor John Paul Denko, City of Hamilton, talking to us about how he believes the encampment protocol here in Hamilton is encouraging, at least some of the things we saw last month.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We are
0: also celebrating this morning because tomorrow at this time, you'll be pulling into a gas station and looking at the price and thinking, what, did I just win the lottery? Here to talk about it is Dan McTagg, president of the Canadian Canadians for Affordable Energy, who joins us on GMH. Dan, good morning. How are you?
3: Uh Great to be here for once uh, with some positive news. Uh, Rick, you nobody's know, never very positive in this field.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you're you're usually the bearer of bad news. This morning, though, good news. What's going on?
3: Yeah. Listen. Uh, maybe not good news economically, but uh, it, it's really a reflection of a couple of factors. Uh, We're seeing uh, what looks like a uh, guaranteed a six cent decrease net at the pumps anywhere you go here in uh, the GTHA or anywhere across pretty much most of Ontario, eastern Canada, even parts of western Canada. Um, And it's really a reflection of what's happened on markets. They're very, uh, very nervous about what's happening generally um, with uh, economic uh, headwinds coming, uh, I guess, uh, threats of higher interest rates. Um, but there's also a, a feeling, a sense maybe, that the American Department of Energy got it wrong and said that demand had cratered for gasoline and other products, and so now we're seeing gasoline prices move down. Uh, the effect of which, uh, we'll see gasoline prices move from a you know a high of a one fifty five point nine down to a dollar forty nine point nine, so six cent net decrease. And Rick, it's probably not going to stop there. I'm looking at this morning's numbers; oil's down, you know, shaved off about eight dollars a barrel. Uh, it's dropped another buck, buck and a half a barrel this morning. We could see yet another two cent decrease come Saturday. So, dollar forty seven point nine at the highest end here, and so all good news, and it's prices we haven't seen literally since last March.
0: So is is this a trend that will continue because, you know, the worries of a recession, the, the interest rate hike talk in the U.S., those aren't going to go away anytime soon. Are we going to see potentially further decreases at the pumps?
3: I think we're going to see further decreases because I think the market is panicked. It's spooked. And um, if uh, anyone had any doubt as to the effect of high interest rates, well, they're now starting to be born on the economy where people are starting to have to make uh, very different very Tough choices as to how they're going to allocate their precious dollars, and I think that's happening more generally across the across the board. And the fight on inflation, while the price of energy has gone up, uh, could mean that uh, for the next couple of weeks we might continue to see uh, energy prices, especially oil, crater. Uh, the problem becomes what happens when suddenly one realizes that the world is fundamentally short of the product, and I'm not just talking oil here; diesel, in particular, which. Uh, even by most conservative estimates, is uh, probably 10 to 15 percent below the five to 10 year average, and that's that's a, a very serious situation as you head into colder weather. Uh, a lot of places still use furnace oil, not necessarily here in Toronto or GTA, Hamilton, Niagara, but um, you know places like the entire U.S. seaboard, Northeast, uh, and of course, uh, Maritimes uh, does use that. Diesel, of course, is, is is a proxy for the health of the economy and it's been on a tear. Demand has been very strong, very robust. So if you start dropping the price, even though demand is strong, you wind up uh, whittling supply in a pretty significant way. We're
0: talking about uh, gas prices taking a tumble tomorrow and uh, likely on Saturday as well with Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. We're looking at a drop from one fifty-five nine to about one forty-nine nine, which would be the lowest since this past spring. Did we already get the price break on the winter blend being used? Is that already in gas stations?
3: We did. It was only a few weeks ago, uh, Rick, that we were looking at 176.9. So, you know, you think about it, we're down 25, 26 cents a litre from that point. It has happened on around, the, around the 20th of, uh, 21st of September. And uh, we've seen the price sort of uh, fall ever since. Um, and that's not just, of course, here in our region, but right across uh, North America. Uh, I, I was uh, doing an interview with your sister station <laughs> in British Columbia the other day. They were paying two fifteen a litre. Uh, a week and a half ago, they're now paying a buck seventy five. So it's uh, it, it may be too fast too quickly. i as a consumer, I think it's fantastic. It's wonderful, But the subtext behind it isn't uh, as uh, as delightful. And uh, I think policymakers are going to have to get a grip on what's really going on here, and that's uh, a market in full retreat.
0: I took a uh, road trip to the East Coast back in August, and gas prices yep. at that time uh, ranged from about a dollar eighty one 81 to a dollar. 91 which certainly hurt the pocketbook but when we're talking about these market conditions and why the energy markets are so kind of I guess jittery at this time are they expecting uh, you know another shoe to drop soon is that why they're reacting now
3: there's a couple of reasons for this there's everyone's expectation is that uh, you know sooner or later someone else is going to produce more oil it won't be Canada it won't be the United States um, and the belief is that those numbers furnished by the Department of Energy in the U.S., which comes out weekly, are accurate. There's now a strong belief that they're significantly inaccurate. So we may have a big, a bit of an oops here. But the one issue that continues to dog all traders, uh, whether they happen to be invested in this market or not, is um, simply what is the long-term strategy of uh, central bankers? Do they want to crash the economy to fight inflation? Because if they do that, then, you know, I think it's all no holds barred. You can watch prices drop further. But there now has to become a question of whether or not that's a very wise policy, uh, considering, of course, that there is uh, structural, uh, you know, inflation uh, and inflationary pressures. An example, a large Canadian population, uh, as underestimating by a million that we people souls living in this country that we now know live here that we didn't think live here before, Uh, For the U.S., um, what is the long-term effect of uh, energy prices as they continue to rise when uh, there's a government that is committed to green energy, which means less investment in oil and gas, which means less supply? If these are not looked at properly, you can move too quickly and uh, cause not only a panic in the market, but potentially uh, economic dislocation on a scale we haven't probably seen in 30 years.
0: Well, that'll be uh, pretty scary. Dan, always appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for bringing some good news for a change.
3: For a change, it's always good. Thanks for having me again to uh, spread the good news again, uh, Rick. Take care,
0: Dan. Dan McTagg is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. And, yes, yeah, some good news. Gas prices as of tomorrow going to fall 6 cents a liter. 155 9 down to 149 9 the lowest since the spring and another little bit of a drop as well on Saturdays you heard from Dan as well and that is certainly some good news.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Renovations as we know are going to happen at First Ontario Centre in the new year. Completion date, uh, October 2025 is what we last were told. The owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs very recently in an article you read in the Hamilton Spectator, courtesy of reporter Scott Radley, uh, Michael Anlauer skeptical about his team's future in Hamilton. Of course, they begin game number one in Branford, season number one in Branford this coming weekend. And uh, Michael Anlauer is thinking, I don't know if there's enough dates at the renovated First Ontario Centre. Because apparently Oakview Group, the people behind renovating the downtown rink, are more inclined to look at concerts, making this a concert-centered venue. P.J. Mercanti is the president of the Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. P.J., good morning. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. Uh, So as I mentioned, Mr. Anlauer is skeptical that the renovated arena is going to have enough dates for the hockey team. Should he be?
4: You know what, Rick? I I don't think so, and I'll and I'll share why. There's there's arenas across North America that that host a ma- m- many major sports teams. You know, you look at Scotiabank Arena in Toronto, and they host forty dates for for professional hockey, forty dates for NBA basketball, and and they still host a, a slew of concerts. So there's a lot of dates to go around, and and you know the the comment from Oakview Group uh, was more around treating live music as if they are an anchor tenant and and giving them the same type of attention as you would to a traditional sports tenant by having appropriate artist lounges and it not being pipe and drape in a a hockey uh, hockey, uh, locker room for the artist, by having better load in and load out for the for the um the musical tours and so so the spirit is for us still to have hockey as part of the venue's activation strategy and and we're certainly hopeful that we can make uh, an arrangement work with the Bulldogs and and we still do plan on having substantial investments made into refreshed locker rooms for both the home and away teams and and you know the the goal is within this new arena to bid on memorial cups and world junior championships so so hockey is still going to be a a very important piece of the venue's activation strategy and we hope to have the bulldogs back we think there's plenty of dates to go around to accommodate sports teams and musical acts um there's a lot a lot of dates to go around
0: just for our listeners just want to remind them of of the direct quote from oakview group canada president tom pastore who told council that live quote live music continues to grow and has not often been thought of as an anchor tenant we're going to build a building that is geared toward that rising trend as we know you know going to concerts more often than not they are held on weekends the bulldogs play on weekends is is the target to perhaps try to convince the Bulldogs to play during the
4: weekday well I think it would be looking at the schedule holistically and and trying to offer you know a combination of dates both both weekend dates and and you know midweek dates so I I think that's you know the goal would be to to work collaboratively to 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 find a sweet spot that makes sense for all parties um and 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 so I, I do think that can be achieved I know that ovg had mentioned that when toronto's sports teams are playing away games on any specific weekend there's a higher probability that Scotiabank would host concerts on those weekends so our arena would potentially be able to offer the bulldogs or other sports teams weekend dates on those types of weekends and and the the concerts you know while weekends are, are more fun uh, but you know, Pearl Jam uh, was wildly successful, and Hamilton had a sold-out show on on a Monday night. So, so that's an example of of how they're an example of how you could have a sold-out show, and depending on the act, uh, p- fans will show up on any given date to 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 hear their favorite band. And so, I think that that you can make all scenarios work. It's just approaching it. Uh, strategically and holistically. And and we, you know, as Tom said in that quote that you just referenced, you know, live, the economics of live music are tremendous. You know, when you look at the Taylor Swift factor and her sh- six shows in Toronto, there was an article that that was issued that said that will deliver more economic impact than all five World Cup soccer matches in Toronto uh, and in Canada. So, so you know, we can't, um, you know, push live music under the rug and, and ignore it. it. It needs to be treated as if it, it is an anchor tenant. And I do believe that all parties and stakeholders can, uh, you know, find a, a way to make it work with dates given to to all.
0: Well, I, I do agree that, yes, concerts do need to be a part of this renovated facility because we, we need to fill as many dates as possible throughout the year. And let's just hope that the weekend availability is there for the Bulldogs. We're in discussion with P.J. Mercanti, president of the Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group. We started off by saying Mr. Anlauer is feeling skeptical about this. Do you feel the need to reach out to him to say, listen, pal, like we're we want you back?
4: For sure. And and I know that um, you know, we there has been outreach to Mr. Ann Lauer, and and you know, once things get rolling on the on the renovation and in the coming uh, weeks, you know, there will be, you know, more announcements. We we do intend to to you know sit down with Mr. Ann Lauer. I know that he had uh, he had connected with Tom Pastore from OBG and and I know that he's you know very uh Busy, obviously, with his Ottawa, you know, successful Ottawa purchase, which is absolutely outstanding, and and starting the season off in Brantford. But we've got a lot of time to to make sure that we can, you know, get an arrangement working with the Bulldogs and Mr. Anlauer. And we have every every um, desire to, to to find the sweet spot with him. We have nothing but respect for him, and and you know, we know how how important he is to the hockey scene locally. Uh, and and we have, you know, every intention of working with him and his wonderful organization.
0: PJ, we got one minute to uh, to play, I guess, in this period, if you will. Um, <laughs> there there was a Disney on Ice event or is a Disney on Ice event that is scheduled for March of 2024, March 14 to 17. And we know the arena is not going to be done until October 2025. So is that going ahead? Because I asked you a few weeks back whether this show was coming and you said that was based on bad info. So is that happening or not?
4: So we have not yet made a decision on that. And, and, you know, as, as uh OVG and in, in the statement that they issued a few weeks back when the Toronto rock announcement was made, you know, they had said, you know, there will be future announcements with regards to potential activation. We haven't made a decision yet with regards to Disney on ice. Uh, but that is, that is, you know, we're, we'll, we'll explore, you know, what the t- specific timing looks like, um, and and this is you know very much uh, a fluid process with the city with regards to you know when specific permits for different types of the renovation could be issued, and so we're going to be having meetings with the city uh, you know in in the coming days with regards to all things construction timing, and and there will be more information. We we do hope to have another um, another, um, uh, events, uh, where more information is shared with the public, uh, within the next month. Um, and so, so we do plan on ensuring that the public is well informed with regards to what is happening, specific timelines and further details. Uh, we're just going back and forth internally about, you know, when we can share that information. And so we're, we will be, uh, Pleased to share more information very soon with the public.
0: P.J., appreciate your time as always. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. P.J. Mercanti, president of the Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group. By the way, there are nine shows on that Disney on Ice for March 2024, and pre-sales are happening now. So, I don't know, make your decision now.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: How in the world are we building fewer homes now than during COVID lockdowns. Well, th- this is actually happening. This is Premier Doug Ford a year ago. Well, we're gonna make sure that we streamline the, the process, make sure we standardize the process, speed up the, the permitting. Um, we're, we're cutting uh, everything we can to make sure that they get the permits out the door and uh, out getting people building. So again, that was a year ago. Well, we need to build more homes. You've heard the promise of building one and a half million homes in the next decade, which again, I just don't think is realistic. We've never achieved that number before, and now we're going to do it now? The math doesn't make sense. David McDonald is a senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. David, good morning. How are you?
5: Good morning. Uh, doing great.
0: So we're building fewer homes because inflation is so high. Is that is that the issue?
5: I guess in a roundabout way, that's true. Uh, it's largely because interest rates are so high. So uh, when interest rates started going up last year, we started seeing big declines in new residential construction. Um, this is happening across the board. So it's happening for single family homes where we're down about a third compared to where we were when the right hike started. Semi-detached homes are down by about a quarter. Uh, And apartment buildings were down by about 20 percent from where we were in February 2022. Uh, But we could go back and actually compare this to the pandemic lockdowns when parts of the industry were just straight up closed down. You couldn't even work on homes if you wanted to. Um, You know, single family homes are down 20 percent compared to where they were in the worst of the pandemic lockdowns. Uh, You know, new row houses and apartment buildings are down a little bit uh, from where they were in the worst of the lockdowns. But it just goes to show that interest rates really have a uh, measurable and very negative impact on new residential construction, really across all of the major uh, types of homes that we're building. With interest
0: rates not going down anytime soon, from what we hear, um, do we have a sense of how long developers are going to press pause on their projects?
5: Well, you know, the Bank of Canada's actually actually studied in great detail uh, what interest rates do to the economy based on past trends and so they made some predictions in a paper just before the the pandemic and rate hikes started uh, and they predicted that uh, when you hike up interest rates uh, the biggest areas to get hit in terms of the you know in terms of the economy are new residential construction you know new home construction um renovations and home ownership transfer costs those are the areas that get hit the hardest. Um, with some impact too on things like um, cars and uh, durables, you know, think of like furniture and electronics. Uh, and the reason why these areas are hit really hard by higher interest rates is we buy them with debt. And so if you've got a big debt load like a mortgage or a car loan, then interest rates matter a lot and they're going to affect how interested you're going to be in buying a house or buying a car. Um, and so those predictions that you know were predicted prior to the pandemic is exactly what's happening. We're seeing uh, the biggest impact on new residential construction. What's interesting, too, is that this analysis from the bank tells us how long it takes for the full impact to be felt of higher rates. And uh, they, they are predicting that it's very long lag times in the neighborhood of two years uh, before we see kind of the worst of it in terms of declines in new residential construction, among other things. And so if we think about when, you know, the rate hikes started in March of last year, but they didn't really pick up steam till the summer of last year. So we're, you know, about a year into this, um, you know, these big rate hikes. And so, you know, we, we probably won't feel the full impact on new residential construction for another year. So this is not the worst of it. I mean, we would expect these, uh, you know, the, the new construction to continue to go down. Which, of course, creates a huge problem when governments of all stripes are saying, oh, we need more supply, we need more supply. Um, You know, in a sense, they're coming to the construction site with a hammer and a nail saying, we're going to build a house. And the Bank of Canada is coming with a wrecking ball and saying, no, you're not. (laughs) Uh, Now, it's not to say that some of the measures that governments have introduced aren't in some way helpful. The problem is that interest rates are just far more, uh, do far more harm than what governments have done so far in terms of trying to incentivize private sector uh, new, new, uh, new residential construction.
0: In our, in our remaining ninety seconds, at the same time this housing crisis is developing, you know our immigration numbers are set to spike over the next number of years. Is it time to rethink that game plan? Well, I
5: think it's time to rethink the game plan of relying on the private sector to do it. You know, of creating permitting processes that are faster, and so on. There's nothing wrong with that, but you can permit all you want if developers aren't going to build it in the end. It doesn't really make that much difference. I think we really need to pivot now to much more public investment. So either governments directly building new units, or providing the financing for those new units. Think of like a zero, uh, you know, zero percent uh, interest loan for a, you know on a mortgage for a nonprofit provider, say, to build new buildings. Um, I think we also need to be pretty focused on the affordability side. You know, when the any supply is good supply, I mean, if you're building you know, mansions on farm fields, it doesn't really change the affordability picture. Um, If it's really more to governments to build, you know, new housing generally, I think they should be focused on the affordability side. So this is more on, you know, apartments, row houses, that sort of thing uh, that can be rented out at much more affordable rents. You know, that's more of a long term issue of, of building these pieces. Now, certainly the decline in investment now, we will see it over the next couple of years. But we also need some short term solutions like maybe providing loans to nonprofit providers to buy up apartment buildings when they come up for sale, take them out of the for profit market and bring them into the nonprofit market and reduce rents in the process.
0: Great suggestions, David. We'll leave it there. Thank you for your time this morning and enjoy the rest of the day.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: David McDonald is a senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Registration uh, now closed to attend the Hamilton Police Citizens Police College this fall, but I thought it was important to shine a spotlight on what Hamilton police are doing in the community.
6: You will endure an extremely rigorous physical training program. Do you know what that means? Hooks. I'm
2: not sure,
6: sir. Voice commands. We will
1: learn to use our voices with authority. Okay,
0: it's nothing like that. Classes start one week from tonight, October 12th, and run every Thursday for five consecutive weeks. And here to fill us in on what is happening in these classes is Constable Ryan Clark from the Hamilton Police Crime Prevention Unit. Constable Clark, good morning. How are you?
7: I am amazing. How are you?
0: I'm pretty good. Tell us about the Citizens Police College. Why Why do Hamilton Police put this on?
7: So we put this on, so we want to create community ambassadors for the Hamilton Police Service. A lot of people don't know what we do, how we do it, and why we do it. They typically get all their policing information from TV and movies, and uh, we work really hard to provide top-notch service to the citizens of Hamilton, so we want to give the public an opportunity to see how we do it and why we do it.
0: Funny, mention TV and movies. I just played a clip from Police Academy, and yeah, we we should not get our policing information from our tablets and our phones and our television sets.
7: No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I would not recommend that. I think people should come and see how we actually do it.
0: So what will residents learn? What are you teaching these people?
7: So what's going to happen is they are going to get presentations from the various different branches of the Hamilton Police Service. So they're going to have a presentation from the homicide unit, the forensic unit, our canine unit, our mounted unit. And they're going to get an explanation of how investigations work and what it's like to be an officer on patrol. And then I have a few surprises planned where I'm going to put them through some scenarios. Hmm. Okay. And see how they do. Exactly. And
0: more often than not, I would assume they fail.
7: More often than not, yes. They will have an officer with them to help them along and uh, show them how it's done.
0: How many people usually enroll for these things?
7: Uh, We're looking for 40 to 50 applicants.
0: Okay. And are we close to that? Because I I think enrollment has closed, correct?
7: Uh, We're at 20 right now. So I think we're going to extend it to get more people because, and this is open to everyone. So people who are interested in a career in policing are welcome. People that just have an interest in policing, people that are possibly looking to volunteer with our victim services or have a position as a sworn member. But it's open from students to the elderly.
0: Have any uh, past participants gone on to become police officers or volunteers, as you mentioned?
7: Yes. Actually, quite a few have gone on to be volunteers, and I believe one actually is now a sworn officer.
0: Oh, wow. So this is really, I mean, to attend one of these, I would assume that these individuals are already kind of interested in what policing is all about.
7: Yes. uh, On the applications, we ask that they put, like, why they're looking for this. And I would say over 90% is it's they're interested in a career in law enforcement.
0: Hmm. Constable Ryan Clark is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Constable Clark is a Hamilton Police Crime Prevention Unit officer and is going to be uh, leading some of these classes of the uh, Hamilton Police Citizens Police College. Do you have any special guests that come in and do some speeches and inform the crowd?
7: Yeah, usually the the crowd favorite is our, our tactical team. They come in. Um, obviously, the K nine unit and uh, the, the mounted unit are crowd favorites.
0: Why is the tactical team one of the favorites? Is because you know they have the fancy uniforms. They got the big guns.
7: They they have the the big truck and usually they have the best stories.
0: <laughs> what kind of feedback do you get from people who do attend the police college?
7: Uh, people love it, and this is why we continue to do it. And we want feedback from the citizens of Hamilton on how we can serve them better. We're always looking to improve. So whether it's praise they have for us or criticism, everything is welcome.
0: Yeah, and I would think that feedback goes a long way. And, and for the residents who attend it, it must be a big eye-opener to say, oh, like that's what you have to deal with.
7: A lot of people have no idea how things actually work or what our officers deal with on a day-to-day basis. So this is a good way to shed some light on that.
0: Yeah, it is a great program. It's been going on since 1997. The first one is one week from tonight. If anyone does want to, you know, at the last minute uh, register, how can they go about doing so?
7: They can send an application package in through our website, or they can contact me uh, at rclark, youngclark, at hamiltonpolice.ca.
0: All right, Constable Clark, appreciate the time. Good luck with this, and uh, we'll talk to you down the road.
7: All right, thank you. Have a great day. You too.
0: Constable Ryan Clark is with the Hamilton Police, and the Crime Prevention Unit one week from tonight is a session or class number one of the Hamilton Police Citizens Police College. If you're interested in policing or just interested to find out what police do in our community when it comes to Forensics or the Homicide Unit, Victim Services, uh, Traffic Safety. We talked about that on the show yesterday with the red light, uh, right turns. Uh, major Drugs Unit is involved as well. The Canine Unit, the Tactical Squad, as Constable Clark mentioned. Uh, a lot to see and learn uh, at the Police College. Online, HamiltonPolice.ca. It's a five-week program, so every Thursday night. Uh, For five weeks, you'll learn all about policing. That sounds pretty cool.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: October is thrombosis month, and this year, Thrombosis Canada is focusing on educating us about the use of anticoagulants, or blood thinners, to treat blood clots and prevent stroke or pulmonary embolism. Here to talk about it is Dr. James Ducatis, hematologist and researcher at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton and member of the Thrombosis Canada leadership team. Dr. Ducatis, good morning, how are you today?
6: Good morning, I'm well, thank you. Uh,
0: Let's start with what is thrombosis?
6: Well, first of all, thrombosis is extremely common. It affects 200,000 people a year in Canada. And you probably know of a family member or a friend who has had thrombosis or has required blood thinners. And there are a lot of people like uh, that uh, this occurs in. And for example, Hillary Clinton had thrombosis and was on blood thinners. Professional athletes like Serena Williams or Stephen Stamkos all have suffered from blood clots. So it's very common. And what it is is blood clots that can form in the leg, which is known as deep vein thrombosis, in the lungs, which is known as pulmonary embolism, and can contribute to stroke and heart attacks. So these are all very serious life-threatening conditions. And our goal is to try to raise awareness about uh, these conditions so that people can get quicker access to very effective treatments that are currently available.
0: Before we get to those treatments, how does this develop? You mentioned, you know, Steven Stamkos, who is a high performance athlete who's getting this. How, how does this occur?
6: Blood clots occur from many reasons, and often the symptoms and signs are are very mild. So people may not know they have a blood clot until it is already advanced or in some cases causing problems to the heart and lungs. So the typical symptoms of blood clots may be shortness of breath, chest pain, swelling or tenderness of the leg or the arm. But there are many factors that lead to the development of blood clots. In a professional athlete, it may be related to how the uh, arm is used in the case of Stephen stamkos, repetitive injury, for example. In most people, it occurs because of family reasons, family history reasons, or other reasons that we're still not sure what, what they are. But in all of these cases, we have very effective treatments. So the, the, the more people know about these symptoms, the faster they get medical attention, the better they will be in, turn, in terms of preventing serious effects of thrombosis. And of course, blood clots can be potentially fatal.
0: So let's get to the treatments. What is available right now and how have treatments developed over the years?
6: First of all, Canada has been on the forefront of development of blood thinners for over 30 years, and indeed McMaster University is considered by many the epicenter of development of blood thinners. And more recently, there are blood thinners that are easier to use and safer. And with that in mind, we really want to make sure people are aware that if they have a blood clot, they should be staying on their blood thinner. Uh, First of all, we recently did a survey and found that about 42% uh, patients on a, on a blood thinner were skipping or missing their doses, and they weren't sure what to do in that if that happened. So that's not a good thing. We want them to continue taking their blood thinners because they are highly effective and actually very safe.
0: How long does a clot normally take to unclog, if I can call it that?
6: yeah it's 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 kind of like a bit of plumbing to be honest with you (laughs) but uh blood clots in the legs or in the lungs or the kind that the the athletes i mentioned had uh take some time to to uh respond to treatment so initially the treatment helps your body break down these clots so it's a process that takes um you know weeks to months rather than minutes to days But as I mentioned before, these treatments are very effective over the long term and and quite safe. We need to make sure patients are aware that, uh, you know, they, they should be continuing on their treatment and that even if a side effect occurs, and of course a blood thinner does that, it thins the blood. So, you know, people can get like a nosebleed or something like that, especially during the months, winter months and they should also be aware that there are effective effective ways to treat bleeding even if they are very serious Uh, so there are new treatments in that regard as well So, so safe to take treatments to deal with bleeding and very effective.
0: Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900CHML is Dr. James Ducatis. He is a hematologist and researcher at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton, member of the Thrombosis Canada leadership team. You can get all the information online at thrombosiscanada.ca. And we're talking about it because October is thrombosis month, and we want you to be aware of uh, the treatments and, you know, some of the symptoms that you may be feeling. When it comes to major bleeds, I know this was part of the research study that 57% said that they've experienced a major bleed. We have 90 seconds to talk about what happens when that occurs.
6: There's about 50% of people who have had a bleed. And a lot of those bleeds are not of the serious kind. Like I just mentioned, you know, people can get a nosebleed and it kind of stops uh, with a little bit of pressure on the nose like any any time. But there are a small percentage of people, in other words, about two to four percent per year who will have a more serious type of bleeding. And these are often people who are older or have other health issues. And of course, as healthcare professionals, we focus on these individuals to make sure that their bleeding risk is minimized. But as I mentioned, in all of those cases, we do have ways to, to deal with the bleeding And many, many people have been on blood thinners for decades, literally, and have not had serious problems while being on them because of these effective ways to deal with bleeding and treatments.
0: Very interesting information from Dr. Dukenis. Appreciate your time this morning and enjoy the day.
6: Thank you very much. Same to you.
0: That is Dr. James Ducanis, a hematologist and researcher at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton, member of the Thrombosis Canada leadership team. You can find out all the information you need to know online at thrombosiscanada.ca. And if you're feeling some of those symptoms that Dr. Ducanis mentioned, give your healthcare professional a call to find out to what your next step should
1: be. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5:30 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900chml.com.
0: The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.